Network. And to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Have you lost a loved one recently? Do you find it hard to move on with your life? There are lots of questions and a quest for a solution. Where do you start? Welcome to From Morning to Morning with your host, Rabbi Mel Glazer. Rabbi Mel and his guests are here to guide you through the different stages of grief and help you heal from your loss. You'll come away with a much better understanding of how you can move forward. Now, here's Rabbi Mel. Well, hello there, my friends. It's good to be on with you again. I've had lots of thoughts since uh, last we got together, and I'm going to share many of them with you tonight, or this morning, or wherever, when, whenever it is, wherever you are. So I want to start out um, by talking about what happens, you know, before a loved one dies. We've been talking a lot about what happens after a loved one dies. How do you go from morning to morning? How do you go from grief to healing? What's the process? You know, my second book is called um, A GPS for Grief and Healing because when somebody dies, we often, we're lost. We don't know what the path should be. So we've talked a lot already, you and I, about, well, I have. You've listened. Thank you. I've talked a lot about what happens after someone dies. And that's usually when the conversation or when the discussion of death begins for most people. It begins as they are remembering their beloved ones. I want to share with you something that I read this past week in a magazine called The Week. And it's um, an article, a brief, it's more like a blog, and it's entitled, How to Tell Someone You're Terminally Ill. Now that's tough, don't you think? You, you've just been told you're going to die. What do you do next? What do you say? How do you say it? To whom do you say it? Uh, what do you say to yourself, your family? Well, anyway, it's written by Malia Wallen, and I'd like to share it with you. I say the doctors told me there is nothing they can do. It is inoperable and incurable, says Wanda N., who is 50 and in hospice care at home in New York with metastasized colon cancer. When I tell people, I use the same words the doctors used to to tell me. 
you might not have time or energy to formulate the exact right phrasing, but you are not obliged to be the town crier spreading the news of a terminal diagnosis. The doctor says, don't feel the need to announce your situation over and over again. Wanda has told only a handful of people, including her father, a cousin, and a few women from her army veterans group. Some she told in person, others by phone or text, which is very interesting because I never would have thought that, you know, somebody was dying and sent me an email and said, Rabbi Mel, I'm dying. Goodbye. I'm going to miss you. I I wouldn't do that. I would uh, make a phone call. I would invite them to come see me. I would have a final conversation, person to person, face to face. But uh, Malia says that uh, texts are okay. She goes on. Though everyone eventually dies, few know how to talk about the end of life. People don't know what to say, Wanda says. They're afraid. Be prepared for strange and stilted reactions. Some want to believe in a fix and will give you unsolicited health tips. Don't eat sugar. Avoid gluten. You can ignore their suggestions, but acknowledge the heart underlying them. And as you've heard me say many, many times, there are a lot of situations that surround death and illness we simply don't know what to say because society has never taught us. Our parents have never taught us. So we say the wrong things, hoping to say the right things, but somehow it just doesn't help. And and you'll remember that uh, some of the non-helpful things that people say are uh, time heals. You'll be okay in time. Well, I don't believe that. Time just passes. It doesn't heal. It just passes. Um, God needed her more than you did. That's not the God I pray to. I don't believe in a God like that. Or you're still young. You can have another one. You can have another child. You can have another husband or wife. You're still young. Well, you know, my response is I don't want another one. I want I want this one. So what I'm saying and what the article is, is acknowledging is that people just don't know what to say a lot of the time. So again, she says you can ignore their suggestions, but acknowledge the heart underlying them. People may offer to pray for you. Prayers are good, but maybe what I need is someone to listen Wanda says. It's interesting. People who never talk about death start talking about it big time when it comes closer. And they can't talk about it before that. It's too tough. It's too painful, and they don't want to talk about death. But I've I've always found that people don't like to talk about death, but once they begin... 
they, they like to talk about it because they have all these thoughts and feelings inside that they want to share and they haven't been able to do. But now their life is coming to an end. Prayers are good, but maybe what I need is someone to listen, Wanda says. For that type of engaged listening, you may need to seek out a professional, like a trained social worker or a psychiatrist or a minister. I do a lot of counseling to people who are close to death, where, like uh, Wanda, they have receive the death sentence, if you will, and they want to talk about it. They need to talk about it. There are things that are unsaid in their lives that they need to get out, and they need to be heard by others. And I do a lot of that. It's not easy. It's really not easy, but you have to do what you have to do. And I'm honored to get involved. I was just a guest speaker last night at a local hospital, and I spoke to the uh, hospice volunteers in that hospital, people who um, visit the sick and dying. And I tried to share with them a lot about, you know, what I've shared with you about what I know about, about grief death, healing, all those kinds of things that we've, that we've talked about together. So you need to talk to somebody. Sometimes you can't heal by yourself. You just can't. It's so difficult. All the great philosophers talk about relationships. Martin Buber talked about I-thou relationship, I-it relationship. I-it relationship is a relationship that you have with the uh, lady that's in your supermarket who checks you out. Yes, you care for her, but not really. You're not really interested in her life or her struggles. But I-thou relationships are reciprocal. You care a lot about those people, and so you go deeper and deeper with them. So... Um, Malia, the author of this blog, is saying sometimes you got to talk about it. And I agree. You have to talk about it. Can't do it by yourself. Sometimes people who know about your condition, those you tell will tell others, will pretend your situation does not exist. Or weirder still, they will temporarily forget to all appearances, Wanda looks healthy, and occasionally the reality of her health slips people's minds. You know, we know sick people, you and I. We live with them. Um, oftentimes, we don't know that they're sick because they don't want to tell us. And they look okay, so how would you know they're sick? How would you know they're dying? How would you know they're not fighting cancer? How would you know they don't have heart problems? How would you know that they're not scheduled for some open-heart surgery in six weeks? How would you know? The answer is, often we do not know. So, as I am fond of saying, everybody walks around wounded. 
And we have to be very, very careful about what we say and what we do not say. If someone looks not well, ask them how they're feeling. Show them that you care. You may not be able to do anything else, but that's good. That's enough. Just showing them that you care. She continues and says, Know that these might be profoundly lonely, vulnerable months when you need to conserve your energy. But in order for people to be there and provide help, you need to tell them. Don't expect others to step up, but give them a chance to. Wanda fondly recalls when a friend, unasked, brought her groceries home, bought them and brought them home to her, and another friend delivered them to her apartment. Sometimes what you need, she says, is very small. Someone to walk with you for five minutes outside the hospital in the sun. That's what some of the um, hospice workers at the hospital told me last night, because I asked them, uh, when you do this work, this tough work, you know, sitting with someone that you know is going to die soon. So what do you do for them? Do you talk with them about their death? What do you do? And one woman said to me, you know, she likes to walk in the outside. The hospital has this uh, small park, and there are park benches, and she likes to walk around. So the hospice worker walks with her. Sometimes they talk about death. Sometimes they talk about the weather. It's not so important what you talk about, although I wouldn't waste my time talking about the weather. It's more important to talk about life and death because soon she will not be alive. I remember a story that I might have shared with you before. Years ago in a previous congregation, I got a call from a member of my congregation who said my husband is dying of cancer and he's going to be dead in three days. Can you come and see him? I said, of course. Now, I would have been there before, but she never told me. I didn't know that he was dying. I didn't know anything. So I walked into his hospital room and there were 10 people and he was sitting up in bed with a smile on his face and they were having a fine and dandy conversation. And I was happy because maybe he wasn't going to die. So I say to everyone, um, I would like to speak to Jack privately. Well, nothing clears a room better than a minister, than a clergy person saying, I'd like to have a private moment. So they all leave and I say to him, I'm so happy because I was worried about you. He said, why were you worried? I said, because your wife said that you're going to be dead in three days. He says, I am going to be dead within three days. I said, you don't look like you're going to be dead within three days. He says, I have told everybody at the hospital, they are not to give me any food. They are just to give me liquids and painkillers. And I will die because I've had enough suffering. Wow. What do you do when somebody tells you that? So I figure, okay, I'm a rabbi. 
I got to say something intelligent, something comforting. So I say, you know, I'm going to give you an opportunity to tell me what you want me to say at your funeral. What do you want me to give as a eulogy? How do you want me to describe you? So he says, just say I was a nice guy. So I said to him, you know, with all due respect, I can't do seven minutes on he was a nice guy. So he laughed. And then we talked more. And three days later, I was in the synagogue sanctuary officiating at his funeral. It's phenomenal. I still remember it was so, such a meaningful experience for me because here we were in the room, just me and him discussing his death. And then he made a joke. He said, how's the weather outside? And I'm thinking to myself, well, why would you care? I want to know how the weather is inside your heart. What are you thinking about? So I led the discussion in that direction. The whole point of this, and I have some more um, after the break, is what do you do, not just how do you mourn somebody's death, but how do you prepare for somebody's death? What words can you use and should you use? How do you tell people that you're dying? How do you deal with that? I'd rather just get hit by a bus, not have to talk about it. But on the other hand, I'd like to say goodbye to people that I knew. I'd like to clean up my relationships so that when I die, I will die at peace with those who were close to me. That's what I would like, and that's what I hope you would like as well. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. How do you define work? Is it that mundane Monday through Friday place that seems to be sucking a third of your life out of you? Or have you made it a place of personal fulfillment, achievement, and purpose? If you are looking to make your work life the latter, tune in to Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. There are all kinds of inspiring work-life stories told by people who have made work something to look forward to every day. Working on Purpose can be heard every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hi, we're back. I'm going to um, 
take a little time and talk about some other things and then return to this topic about what you say to others before you die. But I've read some, um, some articles in some magazines that I subscribe to. I like the magazine The Week, which gives it to you straight and short and plain. And they have wonderful articles and wonderful sort of pithy kinds of things. So they have a column every week, and they, uh, there are two categories. One category is it was a good week for... Then they tell you what, they give you some examples of what it was a good week for. And then it was a bad week for. So a good week for breaking the silence after Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas asked questions during oral arguments in a case about gun ownership for domestic violence offenders. The first time in 10 years that the conservative jurist has spoken from the bench. Can you believe that some, somebody on the Supreme Court, a justice, hasn't spoken up in any arguments for 10 years? 10 years. And all of a sudden, he asks a question. So I ask myself, why now? What changed? And the answer is, Antonin Scalia died. And the week after he died, so Clarence Thomas started to talk. I, I interpret the world in the perspective of grief and loss. And everybody responds in their own way. So when Justice Scalia died, Clarence Thomas decided that he could become a different person, that he could now participate that he could now give himself permission to be a different kind of justice. And so he began to speak. Uh, on one hand, it's nothing. On the other hand, I consider it to be a major change in Justice um, Clarence Thomas's life because now he's going to start talking more and participating more. Uh, that's the way he shows he misses his colleague. I don't know. I'm just trying to make the connection between death and life. So then the category of bad week for Chris Christie, who was widely ridiculed after he stood with a dazed facial expression during Donald Trump's victory speech on Super Tuesday, with some comparing it to a hostage video. You know, Chris Christie was running for president, but he gave up because he wasn't getting any votes. And so he came out for um, Mr. Trump for president. And there was a picture that was all over every newspaper in the country where Donald Trump was giving a victory speech after he had won a primary And there was Chris Christie standing three spaces behind him, looking with a hangdog look on his face, looking like he was asking himself, what am I doing here? Why did I do that? What happened to me? Uh, And a lot of people got very upset with him. Um, 
Six New Jersey newspapers published a joint editorial calling Christie an utter disgrace for endorsing Trump and demanding he resign. This is not to tell you who to vote for, because I don't I'm not it's not my business who you vote for for the next president of the United States. I'm just saying that Chris Christie had a grief response. This was his response to knowing that he was not going to be the next president of the United States, that he was not as popular as he thought he was, that he was not going to get enough votes to be the Republican nominee. And so he was going to do what he thought was the next best thing, and that would be to endorse somebody that he thought might win. I consider that a grief response, a response to his grief, his loss at knowing that he wasn't going to win. There was no way he could win, so he decided to do something else. I'm very curious about these things. I wonder if Donald Trump promised Chris Christie anything, uh, like um, being a member of his cabinet if he wins. Who knows? We'll see. I don't know what's going to happen, and you don't either. Um, it's, it's crazy. This political season is just, it's crazy. So I can't wait to see what happens. I like to watch the process unfold. And I watch it in the context of loss and healing. Because there were a lot more candidates in the beginning. And a lot of them lost. They gave up. They dropped out. And a lot of them, there's only going to be one president elected. So somebody else is going to lose big time or not so big time. And they're going to have to deal with their loss. It's going to be very interesting to see how it happens and how people respond to losing. Because I claim, as I've said before, you only learn anything about yourself by how you respond to the losses in your life. You only learn anything about yourself by how you respond to the losses in your life. Birthday parties are great but you don't learn anything about yourself from a birthday party. But when you are uh, suffering the death of a loved one, you learn plenty about yourself and about other members of your family. You understand what I'm saying because it's happened to you and you have learned life truths about yourself at moments of loss. That's what teaches us. And then I read another article that talks about a, um, a priestly scandal, you know, uh, that we've been reading about for the last two or three years where uh, two Roman Catholic bishops overseeing a small Pennsylvania diocese covered up the sexual abuse of hundreds of children by more than 50 priests over more than four decades. The bishops covered it up. They knew what was going on. Can you imagine? It happens in every religion. It's not just the Catholic Church. There are stories of rabbis who abuse uh, kids as well. And for a long time, organized religion refused to deal with it. Every organized religion, not just Catholics or Jews, but everybody. 
And so what would happen is if a, if a minister was found guilty of sexual abuse, he would simply move to another synagogue or another church or another parish. And it was hidden from the public. And a lot of money was paid to the families of those poor kids who were abused. I can't even imagine the feeling that those kids uh, lived with then and now. Because when you're abused by a priest or a, or, or a rabbi or minister, you don't know what to do because they're power figures and you want to be popular and all that. But you know it's wrong so and you don't know what to do about it. And you, you I mean, I know a kid who was abused by his rabbi, Orthodox. And so I said, well, what did you say to him? Did you say anything? And my friend, who's now a rabbi himself, he, he found his way from morning to morning. The rabbi said, um, I couldn't say anything because I felt if I said anything, he would throw me out of the, out of the school that I was attending and I would go to hell because I was insulting the rabbi. So I ended up not saying anything. Now he's written about it and he's gone past it and he's forgiven the rabbi and he's also reported the rabbi and the, the rabbi was fired and it's all very interesting. So uh, we're still dealing with that. You know, and how do you deal with it? How do you deal with it when you're a high school kid and you're abused by, by a teacher? And then how do you deal with it when you become, when you're 25 years old? or 45 years old, or 65 years old, because you're still carrying that pain with you. So you have to mourn that loss continually as you age and you see the world differently, because you're not 12 years old anymore. Now you're 50, and what do you do? You understand differently than you did then. You still have this pain. You may have guilt. What do you do with it? So it's all very interesting. Life is based on these kinds of on these kinds of uh, losses and how we deal with them and what we learn about ourselves and others by how we deal with losses that come to us. So last week, two weeks ago, uh, I'm going on to something else now. Uh, I started a grief group at my synagogue. And I invited people who had suffered a loss, whether it was the death, usually the death of a spouse, or God forbid a child, or a divorce, some kind of life loss, to get together if they wanted to. And we would talk about feelings because, as I always say, uh, you get from morning to morning by talking about your feelings and trying to help make those feelings come alive and shared with others who keep them confidential and private. And then you can talk about how you feel. So we had about six people who came. We, we meet once a month. And I went around the room and I said, the first rule of this group is that 
everything that's said in my study stays in my study. Uh, total confidentiality. You must, I went around the room. I said, if you accept that, say yes. Otherwise, you can't be in this group because I cannot have people gossiping about what they learn. I can't. It's not, it's not ethical. It's not Jewish. It's not Christian. It's not the religious way to go. It's not compassionate. So everybody agreed. Okay, so we went around the room and I, I said, tell me your story. Why are you here? Well, for the most part, their husbands had died, some later than sooner. Um, um, one woman's husband died, I think, a year and a half ago. I buried him. I did his funeral. One woman's husband died three years ago, one four years ago, various, you know, periods of time. And it's very interesting when I say, as I do all the time, uh, time heals. That's what people say when somebody dies. Time heals. And I say, time doesn't do anything but pass. Time is just time. That's all it is. You have to fill it with meaningful healing activities. So we talked about how they feel and how they're still carrying, you know, the weight of the death of their husbands on their shoulder and all that. It was very interesting because today I got a letter in a synagogue in my mailbox from a, a woman who was in the group or was in the group. She says, Dear Rabbi, thank you so much for convening this grief group, which, by the way, I called Lachaim, which means to life, because I didn't want to call it a grief group. I wanted to emphasize life in the context of community. So she said, thank you so much for inviting me to the L'chaim group, but I'm doing very well. Now, this woman's husband died 10, 15 years ago. So she said, one morning a week I do yoga. Uh, two or three mornings a week I go to the gym. Uh, once every week I go and volunteer in a local hospital. So as you can see, my life is really filled with activities. I have lots of friends who support me. So thank you so much for your invitation. I think I will not be in the group. I was thrilled because that's what I want. I want your life to be filled with joy. I want you to not focus so much on yourself, but I want you to focus on other people even more. And I always, always find that the more you focus on others, the less you focus on yourself. And when you focus on others and you focus on their pain and their grief, and you go buy their groceries, or you go deliver their groceries, or you drive their kids to school, or you come and wash the dinner dishes once or twice a week. You know, when you, when you go outside of yourself, your grief lessens because you stop thinking about yourself so much. That's what happened in the Bible to uh, Job. Job was unhappy. He had lost his wife, his wife. 
family, his, his animals, his everything. And he had friends uh, who blamed him for, for not being a good person, and that's why God was punishing him. Well, the end of the story, uh, and you can read about it in, in, the, in the Bible, or you can read about it uh, in my book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, I talk about how Job finally started to focus on his friends' lives and their troubles, and he tried to do everything he could to reach out to them and be a good friend to them. And it's so interesting because as soon as he started not making himself the focus of all of life, he got better. He got new wives because they could have more than one then. He got, uh, he became rich again. Uh, his life was joyous again, which just proves that you don't have to, remember the Zen story we started with? You don't have to carry her on your shoulders forever. You can lay her gently down. You can lay them down and let them go peacefully and let them die. Or you can carry them with you forever. But if you carry them with you forever, you're going to die too. So she dropped out of the group. She made me very happy. I was a happy rabbi today. And after the break, we'll be back and I'll have some more for you. us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Look among the stars, life is bigger than it seems. Get inspired, encouraged, and connected on our lively, award-winning, healthy living power hour. Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany, live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in to the Power Party for positive, uplifting, life-changing talk radio. Visit StarStyleRadio.com. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hi, I'm back. I want to remind you that I would love for you to email me or call me with your questions and comments. Some of you have, and we, uh, as you remember, uh, two weeks ago, last week, I read some of the emails and responded to some of those questions. They were wonderful questions. Uh, Nobody's called me. You could call me when I'm online. You can call me during the show. Um, you'll look on the Voice America 
slash empowerment, voiceamerica.com slash empowerment, and you'll find phone numbers. And if you want to call, you can talk with me while I'm on the air. I would love to do that. Be brave. Somebody be brave. Nobody wants to be the first one to call me, so you be the second one to call me. Send me an email, and we'll talk about it. So the last thing I want to share with you is, you know, I, as a grief therapist, a grief expert, I read a lot of books on the topic, and some of them are um, novels, some of them are uh, biographies, some of them are just uh, ways to approach grief. So I ordered this book that the um, woman who wrote it, the author, who's a hospice chaplain, she wrote this book and she gave it out free. I just found this out on Kindle uh, or on um, Facebook or something. I don't remember. So she said, just click here and I'll send you the book free. So I figured, sure. And when I tell you the title, you'll understand why. It's written by hospice chaplain Karen Kaplan, and it is entitled Encountering the Edge, What People Told Me Before They Died. So we started off the show tonight by uh, asking the question, how to tell someone you're terminally ill. Now we're getting closer and closer to death, and we're talking about hospice chaplains. So this chapter is very interesting because Karen Kaplan, the author, who's a hospice chaplain, pretends that she is the one dying. And so as she calls it, I'm going to chaplain myself. So what I'm going to read to you is fiction. It didn't happen, but it did, or it could, and it will. Uh, and she decided she had some things that she had to say in her own way. So I'm going to read you a little part of it. And as is my uh, rabbinic tradition, comment on uh, a few items that she shares with us. Now, remember, she's the author and she is now the woman who is dying. That's who she is right now. A couple of weeks after the chaplain's previous visit, I hear the welcome knock on the door. I do not mind that my husband saves me the trouble of having to make the long trek all the way there to open it. As she comes in, she greets him with a hug before he goes off to another room. He senses that I need some private time to talk with her, as does he as he has done last time, as he had done last time, after I fell asleep. This visit, she recognizes that the length of time I can talk at each visit is shorter, understanding that I must spend my verbal coins economically. So Darlene, who is the name of this fictional chaplain, uh, Darlene, gets down to important matters. What's most on your mind today, she asks. 
I do not take the easy way out by wasting the offering of rich interaction by mentioning something mundane, like what I would be eating for dinner. I figure I might as well give her a run for her money and go for the really deep stuff. So she says, I think the path of my life has been one long contest between breaking free of anxiety and embracing the moment. Anxiety has robbed me of peace and joy. I often missed out on the riches of the moment. My tears demand their freedom and finally win it right while I am saying this to her. Now we know about anxiety, don't we? Because we all have what uh, many people call a bucket list. You know, things that we want to do before we die. Now, some of us are fortunate. Some of us are able to complete the things that are on our bucket list. Some of us are not. I hope that I am. I have a list. I hope you have a list too. The bucket list uh, is uh, are the most important things that you don't want to be afraid to do. My son, who's in his 30s, and also a rabbi, he's in Memphis, Tennessee. So he has a bucket list too. And one of the things on his bucket list was to go skydiving once. And he told me this on the phone one day and I said, Elon, you're crazy. Skydiving, really? In your thirties? I mean, it's dangerous. Hello, you know, you could get hurt. He says, I know, but I'm in touch with a place and they, you don't do it by yourself. Skydive with the, one of the professionals and they even, they take pictures, they take videos and they teach you what to do and you go up in the plane and that's what they did. So he sent out the video after the experience and there he was in the plane and he was holding this guy on his shoulders and the guy kicks both of them out of the plane. And they're like, way, way, way high up. You know, and the camera's taking it all in. And I'm, I'm scared for my kid because God forbid. Anyway, he's fine. It all worked out fine. So the, the video showed the whole skydive uh, from beginning, from before. Uh, he, you know, he got uh, his uh, skydiving gear on. Uh, they pictured him, and and the interviewer asked, um, "Have has anybody suggested you do this?" And Elon said, "No, it's my own idea." She said, "Well, what do your friends say about skydiving?" Now, knowing my son as I do, I was worried he was going to say something that I could not share with you, because. <laughs> That's the way we are. We talk straight. But he was good. He said, no, everybody's been very supportive, and I'm looking forward to it. And I'm thinking, I'm not, but so be it. So he take, the video shows everything. And so he they start out in free flight, okay? And then at some point, the professional who's hanging on 
Elon's back, pushes the parachute button, and then they go zooming. It's like they're on a roller coaster in the air. And they go, they go zooming round and round and round, and then they continue to fall. And then he lands. He slides in. It's like sliding into third base. And he waves to everybody. And then he talks about it. What a wonderful experience it was. I am so proud of my kid because he did something that must have made him anxious. But he did it. He wasn't afraid. He didn't let his anxiety win. He beat the anxiety. So now, would I like to go skydiving? Yeah, I guess. But will I ever go skydiving? Uh, it's pretty doubtful, I think. You know, I'm 69 years old. You get more anxious as you get older. Maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should become more free as you get older. But so be it. Stay tuned. We'll see what happens. Let me go back to the book. After the reluctant teardrops all land peacefully on my hand-embroidered shirt, she quotes the poet Debbie Perlman, Your tears are jewels. As more jewels join their fellows upon my shirt, I feel my head clear. I suddenly want to tell her my latest conclusions about God. You know what I think God is all about? God is not a commander or a being who rescues people or doesn't rescue people. God does not grant wishes or punish or watch indifferently from a pie. God is here wherever living things forge a connection between each other that brings out their best or lets them be authentic. I'm going to read that again. It's beautiful. God is here wherever living things forge a connection between each other that brings out their best or lets them be authentic. I think God is about what makes living things want to continue living and drives non-living things to become living ones. Like when I connected in an authentic way with my patients, and of course with my husband Steve, and when people like you are connecting with me, God is here. Even when we make healing connections within ourselves that help us know ourselves more and care more about ourselves and others, that's when God is present. Or maybe I should say I am more aware of God's presence at such moments. I believe God is always present, but usually unnoticed and somehow subconsciously registered in the brain. You know, this is like the instruments in an orchestra that play the background parts that enrich the sounds of the ones playing the melody and act as a backdrop for the soloists. So the chaplain, who is acting as the patient, says, you say you feel a presence right now with us, she asks. Yes, I respond, because I do feel myself clutching at these remaining moments of life. Even now, I feel as if you, this room, this house, all the loved ones in it, all my previous thoughts and memories of all connection are receding. They are getting smaller, as if I were in a train, seated facing the caboose, 
feeling pulled backwards and even further away from all this as the train speeds forward. Darlene and I sit placidly in the quiet for a very long time. My husband Steve comes back in to join the welcoming silence. Steve and I have always liked interludes of quiet. I take in the small noises in the background. The wind is rattling the impatient leaves outside. I feel the rise and fall of my chest and abdomen as I breathe. All of this sensation as infinitely captivating as the exotica of my extensive travels. Quiet places have been my refuge and my meeting place for fanning my internal flame of passion. The silence here is sacred, be held reverently by us as I prepare to dwell in the burgeoning stillness still to come. So the book again is called Encountering the Edge, What People Told Me Before They Died. And it's written by Karen B. Kaplan, K-A-P-L-A-N. So I don't know if she's still giving them out as gifts or whether you got to pay a little something, but um, I love it so far what I've read and we'll finish the book and we'll be enriched by it, I'm sure. It's interesting, again, as death comes closer, we begin to change. If we're lucky and brave enough, we begin to be able to share what's really going on inside. And yes, it's hard to do that. Um, it's because it's such a change and we know, I mean, can you imagine the world existing without you in it? Now in your head, yes, because you know that everybody has an absolute, uh, 100%, everybody's going to die. That's the way it is. There's nothing we can do about it. So, but how do you think about it? So I've shared with you different ways that different people have thought about uh, the dying process. I, it is so meaningful when I am called uh, by a hospice that a Jewish patient wants to see a rabbi. And, and I know that if they're in a hospice and the hospital, the hospice chaplains say they're actively dying, I know what that means. So I go in, I go to the room, I recite the final prayers, I ask God for forgiveness, I ask God for love, I ask God to strengthen the family, and may this person who's dying rest in peace, and may their memories rest in peace as well. That's a good place to end tonight. I always enjoy talking with you. Uh, next time, I hope you stick around with me because we have lots and lots more to talk about. From morning to morning, I am Rabbi Mel Glazer. Thank you again for joining Rabbi Mel Glazer for From Morning to Morning. 
Please tune in again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're wishing you strength and hope in the next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.